You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on December 25, 2023, Christmas Day, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. Um, today, our key verse is verse 8, which is highlighted on the screen. But um, let's go to I'll pick it up. I'm going to read it from verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has a highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. May the Lord bless you after reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we look back at these verses, we We're thankful for them. And now as we consider verse 8 today, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, continue to teach us and show us your way. Lord, we pray that you'll give us a fresh appreciation of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and why he came. Because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are. It's uh, Christmas Day the 25th of December, 2023. Is there any excitement today about gatherings? Well, uh, there was going to be excitement in our household, but it's, it's, it's still going to be there, but uh, uh, the other half have been exposed to COVID and so um, that, that sort of uh, changed things a little bit. But the preparations are done. Whatever you're doing today, the preparations have been done. They've been completed. Or maybe, are they completed yet? Who knows? Maybe there's still some anxiety and busyness swinging around in your heads. Christmas time is always a busy time, isn't it? We've all had some things to do. If you've been shopping, then you've had to contest with crowds and everyone rushing about. The shops have been desiring your spending, haven't they? Your bank accounts are now a little lower, perhaps, because there's presents, there's food, refreshments, and maybe even some holidays. You see, this Christmas, like most Christmases, costs. There's a cost. Today I want us to continue in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. 
in this ancient hymn, this hymn to Christ. And yesterday we looked at the central core meaning of Christmas. Today I want us to look at the the price paid at Christmas from verse 8. Christmas Day is usually a time when we remember the birthday of the Christ child. But today I want us to look into the future, some 33 years after the birth. I want us to move from the manger to a Roman cross. Now we can all have our nativity scenes those nativity scenes that have shepherds and animals and we can look back on the readings and we can view the starry night. We can consider the wise men's visit, which undoubtedly did not happen on that first night, probably a period of time up to two years later after Jesus' birth. However, the nativity scene without the cross, it makes no sense. Today we need to look from the manger to the cross. Now in the 11th century, I introduced this guy yesterday. He was an English bishop of Canterbury and he wrote a manuscript. Why did God become a man? His manuscript dealt with the question, why did God have to die? As much as we love the story of Bethlehem, as much as we uh, consider the crowded him in and Jesus' humble birth and being laid in a manger, the necessity of being laid in a manger because there was no other area, the complete miracle of that whole evening with the angelic host presenting themselves, themselves to the shepherds, Bethlehem without Calvary doesn't help us. Without the cross of Calvary, we can never be rescued. We can never be rescued from the effect and the consequence of our sin with eternal spiritual death and punishment. So Anselm wrote, why did God become a man? And you might wonder why. What necessitated such divine intervention that the eternal creator God of the universe, the supreme almighty God should step out of eternity and into time and join us in our humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So Anselm answers this question. What is it that demanded that God should become a man? And he begins his answer with this statement. Have you not yet considered the heavy weight of sin? Have you not considered the heavy weight of sin? Anselm's answer was that if you understood the dire consequences of sin, then you'd understand why God took this extraordinary pain to secure your rescue. The crushing burden of sin required not only that God became a man in Jesus Christ, but as both God and man, he made full satisfaction for your sin by obedience in his blood. Nothing less, nothing less could secure your salvation. That's why Jesus was born. 
That's why God became a man. So he came in such humility. If all you have is the baby in Bethlehem and not the man of Calvary, you can never have peace with God. It's the cross that is the reason for the cradle. If at this time of the year you get time to watch TV, there's a plethora of Christmas movies, especially with streaming services these days. Years ago, the movies used to be based on the biblical story. And then we had the Father Christmas type movies, although there was a very old movie that's now shown occasionally, made decades and decades ago, The Miracle on 34th Street. I don't know whether you've seen that. It's a light-hearted look at all that. Of course, the most famous Christmas movie comes from a book written a number of years ago, centuries ago, a couple of centuries ago, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. And then every year, so you see these stories, you see these movies, and every year you'll see a variation. You'll see a remake of the Christmas Carol. You know, the modern movies with all the new scripts, they're never better. If you could rewrite your life story, what would you change in a rewrite? What part of your life would you rewrite and change if it were possible? So with this thought, let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 is a, a way of rewriting the outcome of Adam's sin and his failure and my sin and failure and your sin and failure. In this case, the script has been overwritten by the director, the almighty God. You see, the director in this case is also the writer and is also the editor. They're one and the same. So now we've got an entirely new script here that we've been reading, an entirely new story. And it's been written, first of all, in the obedience and then the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came to write a new script for your life and for mine. And so in verse 7, which we looked at yesterday, Paul alludes to the creation account in Genesis, doesn't he? Where Adam was made in the likeness and image of God. And then when Adam had a child, we read in Genesis 5 verse 3, or 1 to 3, that his children are in his likeness. Therefore, Paul says that, the, that Jesus came in the likeness of men. He's saying that Jesus came, the one who made Adam in his own likeness, the God who made Adam in his likeness, now comes born of the woman, born of the virgin, Mary, in the likeness of Adam. What we have here is a reversal. Jesus has come like one of us in the likeness of men. And Jesus has come to do what the first Adam should have done, but didn't do. Jesus came to obey where our first parent failed miserably and disobeyed. Jesus came to write a new story for all of us. And firstly, Jesus did this by humility. You see, in our first part of verse 8, it says, and being found in appearance as a man, 
he humbled himself. Notice that, he humbled himself. In verse 6, it says, Who being in the form of, of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It begins with the honour and glory and the deity of the Son dwelling in perfect fellowship and equality with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the unity of the Blessed Trinity. It begins in, a, in unimaginable majesty and glory. And then Paul says, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He wasn't emptied of deity or of dignity, nor of his rights or prerogatives or privileges. Paul says he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, which literally means he took on the form of a slave and was born in the likeness of men. And Jesus took on human nature and he came as a human. That's what this verse tells us. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this absolutely amazing. We should all be amazed by this concept, albeit that it could be difficult to understand, albeit that it could be difficult to accept. Now, in Islam, this is one of the major stumbling blocks and a major error for the in Islam, they don't accept that God became a man. That God should become like the creature. That the creator and the creature are united in one being, the God-man. Just think of the angels observing the wonder of all this on that first night. Their creator and king, the God who has created the universe, who fills the universe is joined to human cells, multiplying and dividing in the womb of a virgin. And there the righteous Lord, before whom the angelic court in heaven must mask their faces, that now he's born into the world, affected by sin and death, with pain and suffering. In sheer wonder of this event, the angels burst into song, as the shepherds witness their praise, glory to God in the highest and peace and goodwill to all men. Who could keep silent at such a moment? But isn't this humiliation, one angel says to another? Surely the Lord won't stay in this weakness and disrespect any longer. Surely he will quickly display his power and rise in kingly dignity and authority. After all, isn't he David's heir? Isn't that his birthright? But Paul says, no, he entered himself taking the form of a slave, not just coming as a man and taking human nature, as shocking as that is, but also coming in the form of a slave as a servant. He came and ministered among fickle crowds who looked for his miracles, didn't they? They longed for Jesus to perform miracles. Sadly, the people didn't really want him, but they wanted his miracles. In Jesus' human nature, he had all of his own physical needs. He was human. Remember that. In John 4, he asked a woman at the well for a drink of water, didn't he? And then later, he's nailed between two criminals and there while he's suffering in his agony and his pain, he cries out, 
I thirst. You see, he suffered all the physical needs that we, we suffer from. You see, earlier, a couple of weeks earlier, he'd arrived at the grave of his friend Lazarus and was overcome with grief and compassion. And what did Jesus do? He did a very human thing. He wept. Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself. He didn't have to deal with pride. The first Adam was proud. The first Adam didn't humble himself. It was Adam's pride that compelled him to disobey God's rule. Adam didn't want God to limit his freedom. We too don't want God to limit our freedom. So Adam ate the fruit he was forbidden to eat. Adam disobeyed. As such, he fell into sin and the whole human race fell also into sin. And from that day, from that first father, when that first father ate the, the forbidden fruit, it resulted in all of us bearing the family likeness. You see, we have to deal with sin in our own lives. You know, there's too much of Adam in all of us. Humility doesn't come easy. You see, we want to be master of our own selves. We want to be in charge of our own lives and our destiny. That's the common attitude we have. I'm in charge. I'll be God and king in my private world. But not so with Jesus Christ. There's no pride. There's no boasting in the second man and the last Adam. He didn't withhold any affection of or didn't withhold mercy. He didn't withhold anything of himself from anyone who sought him. Although it made him a slave to all. You see, friends, Jesus humbled himself. So how did he humble himself in verse 8? He humbled himself and became obedient. Jesus was obedient. When Christ came, he lived under and obeyed his very own law. His coming was of itself on that very first Christmas an act of obedience of the Son, by the Son. He came because he was obedient to the Father. In all the works he did, they were governed by his perfect obedience to the decree and design of God. In John 5 verse 36, Jesus said, For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Every word, every deed was governed and directed by the plan of the Father and Jesus meekly obeyed. Now before Jesus began his earthly ministry, after he was baptised, he went into the wilderness to pray. And there while he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted by Satan. And there Jesus resisted Satan through God's word. In Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He obeyed God's written moral law in Holy Scripture. He obeyed every word. 
He was our obedient saviour who kept the law perfectly, even when tempted. And there in the wilderness he didn't cave in. He was obedient and submissive. And Hebrews 4.15 says, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He didn't cave in. And then before he was arrested in the garden on that night, he prays this prayer. Remember this prayer? Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was obedient to the will of God. He is obedient. Why is he obedient? Think about it this way. Why was it necessary when God became a man in Jesus Christ that he comes as a baby and lives a whole life before he went to the cross? Why is there a lifetime of, of obedience necessary? Why not simply come and then be offered as a sacrifice and die? Because he obeys. There needs to be a life of obedience the verdict necessary for God to be satisfied in, in the heavenly court for your case and my case is more than a not guilty. You know, that's the very best in an earthly court that can be achieved. The best a judge can pronounce in an earthly court is not guilty. Earthly judges do not declare anyone innocent. The best they can do and say is, not guilty. And this, if this were the standard that God required, we would all still fall short of God's standard because we are all guilty in Adam. And we're all guilty in our own sin to boot. But God's standard is higher still. He requires not only a not guilty verdict, he requires a verdict of righteousness of righteous. You must be righteous to stand with confidence before a holy and righteous God. The standard is righteous, perfect obedience. And in light of that standard, who has hope in their own obedience of being found perfectly righteous? Who of us has any of that hope? Not me, and if you're, if you're honest with yourself, not even you. Your best righteousness will damn you forever. Therefore, you need the righteousness of another. You need someone else to act for you. You need another Adam. The first Adam acted for us as our representative. That's why when he sinned, we are also guilty. And his sin is credited to us. Adam's sin has affected the whole human race. It's credited to us. So now we need another Adam to do what the first Adam should have done but didn't. We need an obedient second man. We need the last Adam. That's why he came. That's why there's a need for a whole life of obedience so the verdict righteous that God must pass judgment over the obedience of his son might become your verdict. The verdict passed over you, not because you are righteous in yourself, but because he is righteous in you and for you. That's why he came. That's what Christmas is about. There's a righteous saviour whose righteousness can cover all your sin 
and cover all your guilt. He's obedient for you in your place. That looking at you, he will see you through his son. And God will say, you are righteous in my sight because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. How far did Jesus' obedience go? What height or depth, what length did Jesus' obedience take him? In verse 8 it has more to say. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus' obedience required not just that he obeyed God's holy law, but that he satisfied the penalties of the law that you and I broke. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. So Jesus pays in full with his life that you might live, that I might live. He dies that you might live. The righteous justice of God requires that all sin must be paid for. We will either pay ourselves or Christ will pay for us. There are only two choices. Either he bears the wrath and the curse of God in your place or either you will bear the wrath and curse of God in hell forever. What will it be in your case? Now, friends, first Christ came down. He came down in humility. He came down as a human, and then as a servant, as a slave. He came down in humility. He came down in obedience, and then he came down into death. But this isn't just any death. This is the wretched, despicable, shameful, cursed death of the cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now, friends, this is stunning. Even the death of the cross. Can you imagine a more shameful thing? In Jesus' day, the cross was not a symbol of faith. You'd never wear it as an item of jewellery. The cross was a symbol of horror and shame. The Romans loathed the cross where they reserved crucifixion only for criminals and slaves and rebels. For the Jew, there was even more stigma attached to crucifixion. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. For the Jew, crucifixion was a clear sign of God's rejection and wrath. And yet he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He bore shame and scoffing in your place and in my place. He stood condemned and sealed my pardon with his blood. He died that you and I might live. Friends, make no mistake, this is why he came. This is why the God-man came. It was for the cross. Because the gravity of your sin, the gravity of my sin, demands it. Do you see now how much God has loved you? That famous verse that we all know, we're all familiar with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's what Christmas is about. That's why it's worth celebrating. 
Your debt of sin has been paid by Christ's humility and then by his obedience and by his blood. He's paid a great and a high price for you. But has he paid this price for you? Has he paid this price for you? Have you taken God's Christmas gift today? Have you taken his own son, Jesus Christ, by faith? That's how we're saved. We're saved by believing in who Jesus is and what he's done for us individually. And so, friends, this Christmas, as you contemplate these thoughts, I want you to think about them and take Jesus by faith. Come to him today by faith alone. Trust in him. Friends, what a saviour we have in Jesus. And there is no other name under heaven to be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for family and friends this Christmas and we just ask that you would bless all these to us uh, as we enjoy this day whatever it brings for all of us. And we pray, Lord, that most of all we will remember the reason why Jesus came. He came to save sinners such as we all are. He came to save each one of us. And we, we just ask, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit you will stress this point to our souls today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.